Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This episode contains depictions of sexual assault that some listeners may find upsetting. 18-year-old night porter John Shine is navigating one of the narrow and twisting back streets of Piccadilly. It's pitch black. Come. You've got to let me make love to you. No, I've already told you I'm not going to let you. Up ahead, in the darkness, there are unseen people. You won't. I won't. Shine can hear a rustling noise from a doorway. The beam of a flashlight darts for a moment, but is then extinguished. As the teenager draws closer, the light comes on again and illuminates the legs of a woman lying on the ground. The person holding the flashlight drops something and disappears around a corner. Shine lights a match. What's wrong? He asks the woman, sprawled at his feet. Greta Haywood has been choked into unconsciousness. As she slowly comes round, she tries to talk, but no words come out. Help! Anybody, help! Greta's face is bloodied and dirty. Her clothes are ripped, her buttons torn away. Can somebody help me, please? Her skirt pushed high up towards her waist. This lady's in trouble! Answering Shine's cries for assistance, a passerby with a flashlight arrives. I just saw her drinking with an airman. Shine helps Greta to her feet. Still unsteady, he leans her against the wall. He again asks how she is, but she seems not to comprehend him. My bag... What has he done? Wanting to get her to a police station as quickly as possible, the young night porter scans the ground around them for Greta's handbag, but sees only her gloves. 
and an airman's haversack containing a gas mask. Inside, scribbled in indelible ink, is the owner's service number, 525987, and the number leads to a name. The Blackout Ripper is 27-year-old Gordon Frederick Cummins. Barely 30 minutes after Greta Haywood was forced into that darkened doorway, detectives are calling the nearby Royal Air Force Base and demanding that Cummings be arrested on sight. But the airman isn't headed back to barracks. His night on the town has only just begun. Hello. Would you like to go with me? Yes, for two pound. Taxi! This is the seldom told story of women in World War II who were killed not by the enemy, but by husbands, lovers and strangers wearing the uniform of their own side. It's also the tale of a particular string of murder victims that history has swept from view. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. And I'm Alice Fines. And you're listening to Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper. Greta Hayward's welts and contusions were still forming as Dr Alexander Baldy appraised her injuries at West End Central Police Station. As the Metropolitan Force's divisional surgeon for the area, Dr Baldy was called on to examine all of Cummings' victims. He remembered vividly the icy cold of the bleak air raid shelter where Evelyn Hamilton lay. In Evelyn Oatley's gloomy, subdivided room on Wardour Street... Baldy had needed a flashlight to help him determine her time of death. Margaret Lowe's body was awaiting discovery in her flat on Gosfield Street. The doctor would attend to that soon. In Greta Hayward's case, Dr Baldy was able to match testimony to bruises and abrasions on living flesh. Her left eyebrow and cheek were injured, but it was the redness and discoloration across the left side of her neck that pointed to the Blackout Ripper's telltale preference for strangling his victims. The police surgeon judged that Greta's marks were... ..consistent with her allegations of being grasped by the throat. Greta shared her story of meeting Cummings at the Brasserie Universelle. She told of his insistence that they head outside to another venue and his persistence that she relent and allow him to have sex with her. She recalled how... In the blacked-out streets, he'd forced her into the doorway and begun to sexually assault her. How he'd countered her attempts to resist by grabbing her throat and squeezing tighter and tighter. He was saying something all the time, but I can't remember what it was. I do remember that some of the words were, you won't, you won't. Greta's next memory was of regaining consciousness with young John Shine standing over her. 
The teenager had not been able to find Greta's handbag, but a police constable returned to the scene of her ordeal to retrieve it. I had a ten shilling note and about five shillings in silver. I also had my ration book, keys and letters in there. The handbag, when it was returned to Greta, was empty. Cummings delighted in robbing his victims, taking money to add to his already bulging bankroll, but also seeking out trophies to keep, mementos of his murders. Had Cummings been ransacking Greta's purse when John Shine disturbed him? Had the airman's greed momentarily diverted him and stopped him finishing Greta off? Whatever happened in those few moments between Greta passing out and John Shine scaring Cummings away, the attack was a breakthrough for the police hunting the Blackout Ripper. The haversack he'd left behind revealed his identity. It had a serial number inside, but it also linked Cummings to other crime scenes. In the police laboratory, dust and dirt residues from the air raid shelter where the pharmacist Evelyn Hamilton was killed were compared to traces on the gas mask bag and found to have a similar appearance and the same characteristics. Unlike the women killed by Cummings, the police did little to explore the background of Greta Haywood. Her witness statements offer few biographical details, save that she was married but living apart from her husband and that her date that evening was an army officer she'd been meeting by appointment since before Christmas. Detectives seem to have thought it wasn't worth finding this captain or delving into Greta's marital problems. And other official records shed precious little light on the life of Margaret Mary Teresa Haywood. Greta's marriage certificate suggests that she was born in 1907, that her maiden name was Keane, and that her father was a dancer. No other trace of her exists in the records, not of her birth, nor of her upbringing. However, Greta's marital troubles can be pieced together from archival fragments. Her husband Henry, a bank clerk, seems to have been residing with a woman in her early 20s, a full decade younger than Greta. The couple had not wed, but were living as man and wife, and already had a baby girl together. Cummings' attack on Greta had been vicious and determined, and as she sat with police detectives, she admitted to... Feeling very bad. Sitting across from Greta that night was Detective Sergeant Amy Ettridge, one of the most senior women in the entire London force. Back in the 1920s, Amy had swapped a bank position for a job that would offer her... The open-air life. Her days as a beat cop were far behind her, and now she investigated some of the most serious crimes in the West End. The newspapers called her a heroine, who gently outwitted the bad men of the district. It's not unusual for me to be working all night, said the detective. And that night seemed to be no exception. The Blackout Ripper was somewhere out there in the dark, still at large, still a deadly threat to women. But the police now had a name, and thanks to Greta, a fulsome physical description. I'm sure I should recognise him again. Greta recalled the man's height and slim build, his light blue eyes and sharp features, but his voice was what stood out. He was 
very well spoken. Hello. Cummings held up a lit cigarette to illuminate the face of 25-year-old Catherine Mulcahy. They stood in the darkness outside Oroninos, a hotel a few hundred yards from where the airmen had just throttled Greta into unconsciousness. Would you like to go with me? Yes, for two pound. Catherine described herself as a married homemaker, but on occasion she took men back to her flat for sex. Perhaps once or twice a month, she estimated. That apartment was a little way distant from Piccadilly. Too far to walk. Catherine tentatively raised the prospect of hailing a cab, hoping the extra expense wouldn't scare this client off. Taxi! Southwick Street driver, number 29. Yeah, all right, in you get. Perhaps impressed by the airman's posh accent and his willingness to stump up for the taxi fare, Catherine openly mused about the £2 fee she'd negotiated in haste. I wish I could do £5 tonight. As the taxi motored west out of Piccadilly and towards the dark expanse of Hyde Park, Cummings couldn't resist once again bragging about his fat bankroll. Don't worry. I have £30 on me. He peeled off three more pound notes and handed them to Catherine. This woman was now bought and paid for. He immediately knelt at her feet, pushed her skirt up and forced his way between her thighs. The young woman protested. She wanted him to stop. Not now. We'll be there in a moment. Please stop. But Cummings continued his assault and the taxi driver likely didn't even turn around to check on the commotion. He's learned to kind of permanently look the other way with issues like that. Historian Julia Late is an expert on the wartime sex trade. As mentioned in previous episodes, the police were cracking down on brothels and women were increasingly forced to work out of rented rooms. For those with a clientele of trusted regulars, this arrangement worked well. But if a woman was meeting a churn of servicemen on the streets, then the inconvenience of shuttling back and forth to a flat, if an affordable one could be leased close to Piccadilly, was a headache. And so women would pick up clients and get into taxi cabs with them, and the taxi would drive around the block while they, they had sex, and then they'd get out again. The use of cabs by sex workers had been part of London life for centuries, but the introduction of sweeping emergency powers at the outbreak of the war gave the authorities new tools with which to tackle this phenomenon. They knew they couldn't call them brothels, and so they went after them with a Defense of the Realm Act regulation for wasting petrol. It's just this sort of eternal game of cat and mouse, and the war really puts extra pressure on both sides of that. Stop! It's not decent! Sit back down beside me. The cabbies of Piccadilly were accustomed to their role in the sex trade. They kept their eyes on the road and their ears tuned to their meters clicking up the fare. Not in front of the driver. What will he think? Cummings finally returned to his seat beside Catherine, just as the driver took them past Hyde Park. Acre upon acre of shadowy open ground, tangled bushes and thickets of trees. The airman suggested halting the taxi so that he could take Catherine into this black void in the heart of the city. 
The prospect made Catherine afraid, very afraid. The Blackout Ripper will return in a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. On especially cold nights... Women congregated outside the famous Dorchester Hotel on Park Lane. They came not to catch a glimpse of its celebrity guests, nor to sample its lavish amenities and the fabled Turkish baths, but for a warm air vent around the back that they'd nicknamed the Hot Plate. I'm my legs off. Anything to take the chill from their bones before they crossed the road back into Hyde Feel Park. My hands. Like blocks of ice. Oh, my feet just—I can't feel them anymore. Oh. God, it's horrible, isn't it? So cold, bloody hell! And the reason they're there is because they can't afford to pay for the inside accommodation, so they're using the park as a place to have sex. 
London's green spaces had for centuries been associated with illicit liaisons and the professional sale of sex. On the eve of war, one hotelier, on the edge of Hyde Park, complained in court that women selling sex outside of his establishment were scaring away guests. Slow down. No, I'm in a little chat, is there? Look at him. Come on, let's get in. Do you want some company? As many as 20 women had gathered nearby. Slow down. No, I'm in stopping and talking to me. And they were even going as far as to grasp at the lapels of passing men. Get your hands off me this instant. I have a good mind to call the constable. What bloody good will that do? Police efforts to crack down on the sex trade only pushed these women from bustling and well-lit areas towards the unfenced and deserted parkland. Bad women, said one senior officer in charge of policing Hyde Park, often migrate to here from other districts in the hope of carrying on their immorality undetected. The blackout made detection even more unlikely, and the decision of America's General Eisenhower to set his headquarters up right beside the park flooded the area with potential clients. The women frequenting this quarter, the women who availed themselves of the hot plate's occasional warmth, became mockingly known as the Hyde Park Rangers, sisters and neighbours of the Piccadilly Commandos. Not everyone viewed the situation with levity. One scandalised London newspaper dispatched a team to the park to carry out a census of the nightly activities. Within one hour of dusk, they witnessed a dozen liaisons. Get in the night, full mate. Sling your bleeding hook, you pervert. Couples were lying on the grass, visible to anyone walking by. I'll pass round here. If they're going to watch, they can at least pay. <laughs> and the ages of some of those involved shocked these observers. Most of the young girls, described as amateurs, were between 15 and 16 years of age. Of particular concern was the number of girls, orphaned or living apart from their families, who had swapped group homes or other public institutions for the excitement of Piccadilly and its environs. So these are what we would now call juvenile delinquents who are running away from the residential schools that they've been stuck into, hitchhiking down to London and hooking up with soldiers, maybe for money, maybe for just a good time. The local elected official, a former fighter pilot called Captain Cunningham Reed, publicised one particularly disturbing case of a vulnerable 15-year-old girl who'd fled a grim government-run hostel where she was sick of being exploited for long hours of unpaid scrubbing and cleaning. Yeah, go on, love. Take another swig. She was found drunken and capable in Hyde Park at 1am. She can certainly knock it back for a young'un. Surrounded by a group of soldiers. Shouldn't you be tucked up safe in bed, darling? Nah, she can do much more fun out in the park. It was into dark and cold and lawless Hyde Park that the Blackout Ripper hoped to take a petrified Catherine Mulcahy. Oh, don't be silly, she told the airman. They should stay in their taxi and keep to their original plan. We'll soon be in my room. The inside of the room at 29 Southwick Street was dark. The electric meter needed feeding, though Cummings claimed not to have a spare coin. Despite his protestations that they didn't need light, Catherine lit a scrap of paper. She didn't want to be in the pitch black with Cummings, 
Something was very wrong about this man and this transaction, and it frightened her. He'd given the money over too easily, almost as if he'd thought he'd soon get it back. Catherine's life up to this point might well have taught her to be on her guard. Those who knew her talked of her deep reserves of strength and resolve. She was born in Penny Greig, one of the famously tough coal mining communities clustered along the Rhondda Valley in South Wales. Her father had worked at one of the village's deep mines, crouching in the gloom to hack and hew away at a shining ribbon of coal. But he'd probably missed the arrival of his daughter in 1916. On her birth certificate, he's cited as a private soldier in a local Welsh regiment, likely posted far from Rhondda as World War I raged on. Returning to the pit in 1919, Thomas wasn't the same man who'd left to fight in the war. He was awarded a partial pension because of a dilated heart, which had been aggravated by his time in the service. Despite this ailment, the coal hewer had little choice but to return to that underground seam and resume his back-breaking profession. Catherine grew up amid bleak slag heaps, belching chimney stacks and whirring mineshaft elevators. The economic and political backdrop was no less grim. Poor wages and dangerous working conditions dogged miners. Angry disputes flared and bitter strikes were called. In 1921, Thomas was listed as out of work. Global coal prices had collapsed and colliery owners had slashed wages in half, closed pits and sacked miners. Some Ronda men were reduced to digging at any coal close to the surface, tunnelling down to find fuel that might heat the family hearth. Thomas eventually returned to the coal mines, though at first as a mere labourer rather than as a coal hewer. It's possible that this job title reflected both a drop in wages and in status. 1927 brought a double tragedy. In February, tuberculosis claimed the life of Catherine's 31-year-old mother, and in June, Thomas's heart finally failed. 11-year-old Catherine was an orphan. Aged 19, Catherine had left the Welsh Valleys behind and was living in London, married to Patrick Mulcahy, a waiter. The couple set up home north of Hyde Park, near Paddington Railway Station. There's no evidence that Catherine sold sex at this point, but such activities certainly weren't unheard of in the locale, says Julia Late. So Paddington is its sort of an offshoot of the West End sex trade in some ways, but it tends to be associated with what the police would call a lower class of prostitution. It tends to be associated with younger women, though not always, with poorer women, with lower prices. And one of the reasons for that is because there's cheaper accommodation there. There's lots of cheap hotels. There's lots of cheap furnished rooms all around that area. And there's also a lot of sort of military barrack around that area. So a lot of soldiers to sell sex too. And finally, there's the park. Catherine's marriage to Patrick seems to have been on again, off again in character. During the war, she was living under an assumed name, Kathleen King. And it's not clear if she shared her flat at 29 Southwick Street with her husband. 
Patrick certainly wasn't there on Thursday, February 12th, 1942. With five pounds paid and stashed away in her kitchen, Catherine, now naked except for boots and a necklace, said she was... Anxious to get the business over. Cummins, also naked, made an odd request that Catherine lie on the floor, which she declined. She instead got into bed, hoping the sex would be over quickly. The man pressed on top of her, but instead of caressing her, he clasped his hands around Catherine's throat. His two thumbs were pressing on my windpipe. I could not make a sound. I struggled and managed to loosen his grip on my throat. Fighting for her life, Catherine screeched for help before Cummings again clamped his hands round her neck and began to throttle her. I was still wearing my boots. I pulled my leg up high and kicked him in the stomach. Hard. Winded, Cummins fell off the bed, landing on his head. Catherine made a break for the door into the common stairwell. Murder! Police! Catherine implored her female neighbours to summon help. Run and fetch them, please! I'll phone them! Just get someone here, quick! But initially, they were too petrified to act. Finally, an elderly lady, armed with a vase, stood guard over Catherine until her client gathered his clothes, counted out more pound notes by way of compensation, mumbled about being drunk and made to leave. Catherine, now wrapped in a tablecloth, was in no doubt about what had just happened. You're the man who's been murdering women around here. She called out as Cummins trudged down the stairs and out into the blackout, leaving the street door open behind him. Just a few blocks away, Doris Chouanet was bidding goodbye to her husband Henri at Paddington Tube Station. The couple had managed to spend part of the evening together at their nearby flat, but an exhausted Henri was now catching a train to return to work at the Royal Court Hotel. The 66-year-old should have been enjoying a comfortable retirement, but the couple's finances had taken a battering. Reluctantly, Henri was spending less time with his young wife than he thought wise. Doris, he feared, had also returned to work. In her case, selling sex. This evening, Doris had wanted to get some fresh air, so she walked Henri to his tube stop. He fretted about her, and he wanted her to turn around and go straight home. But she didn't. And before reaching her front door at Sussex Gardens she would encounter Cummings. The Blackout Ripper will be back in a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. 
What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Doris's story begins hundreds of miles from London, in a world that felt like it would never be touched by the terrors of war. Indeed, December 16, 1914, began like any other peaceful morning. The people of Hartlepool on England's northeast coast woke to the chill winter gloom, rose from their beds and sat down to breakfast or made their way through the misty streets. Children to the classroom, adults to their places of toil. The North Sea was still, shrouded in dense fog. Then, something unusual. Flashes of light way off in the distance, illuminating that thick curtain of cloud. And was that thunder? White-hot metal was raining through the air screaming, whistling, fragmenting as it met with wall or stone-paved street. The lethal shards sliced through brickwork, roof timber and flesh. A single shell tore through four houses, wrecking the buildings and blasting the bodies of the people inside. One family was at their breakfast table when a shell burst through the ceiling, killing their daughter instantly. Another man, fleeing his home, found the bodies of his two little grandchildren by the front door, crushed beneath the debris of their crumbling home. 
Other townsfolk met their ends sleeping in their beds and were atomized along with their furniture. The hometown of eight-year-old Doris Robson was being pounded and pulverized by the mighty guns of three German battleships. The cowering locals feared that this was just a prelude, that the enemy was, at that very moment, stealing up the beach, ready to invade and capture the town. Britain had been at war with Germany for months now, but this bombardment was the first time that its civilians had come under fire. And the enemy did not discriminate. Little children, Doris's peers and playmates, were struck down as, holding hands, they ran for cover. After 40 long minutes, the onslaught was over. Stunned, petrified, shaken, the men, women and children of Hartlepool began to emerge from their hiding places to peer at the wreckage. On Doris's street, the row of terraced houses was battered and pockmarked, jagged holes gaping where once there had been walls, windows and doors. Other dwellings, said the papers, had been completely ripped open. And their interiors could be seen from the streets. A local gasworks had also been struck and then exploded in the attack, plunging what remained of Hartlepool into darkness that night. The Germans had not set foot on British soil as had been feared, but more than a thousand shells had been fired. Over a hundred people were dead and hundreds more wounded. Among them... A large number of women and children, mostly of the poorer class. The people of Hartlepool and of two neighbouring towns had tasted the horrors of modern war. The fighting had seemed distant, relegated to the battlefields of faraway France and Belgium. But now they were forced to confront the distressing truth that even the barrier of the sea and the walls of their own homes could not protect them from the enemy. Recruitment drives capitalised on the devastation this bombardment had wrought. Enlist now and help to avenge the murder of innocent women and children in Scarborough, Hartlepool and Whitby exhorted the posters. Show the enemy that we will exact a full penalty for this cowardly slaughter. The men of Britain were being urged to defend a particular vision of the home, an idealised tableau of domesticity with mother and children gathered round the family hearth. In reality, not all families and not all lone mothers were deemed worthy of protection it was only those women married to absent soldiers, for instance, who were eligible to receive benefit payments in the form of a separation allowance during the war years. And even they stood to forfeit that payment if it could be proven that they had committed adultery in their husband's absence. When Doris was born in March 1906, in the place on her birth certificate where her father's name ought to have been inscribed, there was simply a slash of ink. Her mother, Mary Robson, was unwed. There's a lot of prejudice against unmarried mothers. Dr. Ginger Frost is a research professor of history at Samford University in Alabama. The assumption is that she's sexually incontinent rather than you know, in a relationship and it failed or something like that. Given that Hartlepool was still a relatively small town, Ginger says that Mary Robson's community would likely have known that Doris's father was absent. 
both mother and child would have been shamed. There would have been whispers in the streets. Slatten. And Mary might have even found it impossible to secure a job. Some women in Mary's situation were cast out by their families and ended up in the workhouse. Others even drowned themselves when they discovered they were to have a child out of wedlock. The unmarried mother was considered a deviant and feared. Social scientists held that single mothers were feeble-minded and would create morally inferior offspring. They were influenced by eugenics, the then popular pseudoscience that preached that good and bad traits could be passed from generation to generation. There is evidence that such a child is more likely to become a criminal or a prostitute than is the child born within marriage. Mary was not among those unfortunate women who were wholly rejected by their families. Prejudice against single mothers was widespread, but they weren't universally vilified. Here's historian Pat Thane. There's always a tendency for the kind of moralists who scream about things to be remembered more than kind of ordinary people who don't make such a fuss. And so there always were moralizers who were terribly hostile to single mothers and thought they were shameful and immoral. And But also, obviously, plenty of other people who were prepared to support them and understood how it could come about that you know, somebody might be raped or a relationship might fail. Mary and her sister Isabella raised Doris together in a home near the sea. The women were originally of working-class stock. Their father had worked in the mines, but Isabella had a good enough level of education to become a schoolteacher. Mary, meanwhile, stayed at home, tending to the household duties. Illegitimacy and its attendant shame often fostered secrecy. As a result, we can't be sure what Doris felt about that cruel slash on her birth certificate, or even what she knew of her parentage. Some illegitimate children enjoyed happy childhoods, but others faced merciless bullying. Ginger Frost has read some first-hand accounts of such cruelty. Usually it started at school. Usually the other kids all know because their parents know, so they overhear them and then they, it's, kids use things, right? If you've got red hair, they make fun of you for that. If you're wearing glasses, they make fun of you for that. If you're too tall, if you're too short, it goes on and on. And that's the thing you pick on with those kids. And they would call them bastard to their face at times. And they hated hearing it. It shamed them for something they didn't even really understand. So there's all kinds of prejudices like that that illegitimate children complain of growing up for something they didn't even do. And some of them didn't know. A lot of them thought their grandparents were their parents, and it was other children who enlightened them because they'd overheard their parents talking about it. The label of bastard could cast a long shadow over not just the early years of these children, but their entire lives. Lots of them fantasize about rich, wonderful parents showing up and taking them away from all of this. Of course, it didn't happen because most of them, the fathers, were just as poor as their mothers. The novelist Catherine Cookson was born the same year as Doris, also in England's poor northeast. She too bore the stain of illegitimacy, and even as an adult, Cookson recoiled at the very word illegitimate. This frightening word, this word that had bred fear, that had brought shame into my life, this word that had started all the trouble, the dictionary word, illegitimate meant not authorised by law, improper, 
Not born in lawful wedlock. Bastard, wrongly inferred. Abnormal. Mary and Isabella Robson managed their house alone. There was no father, no man, no patriarchal protector under their roof offering his stamp of respectability. All the same, Doris grew into a poised and collected young woman. Quiet, occasionally moody, she was said to carry herself with a certain elegance, to have a refined bearing. Perhaps the Robson sisters encouraged aspiration in Doris and a sense of possibility, for she seems to have hungered for a world beyond the small port town in which she'd been raised. Or perhaps she simply wished to escape the legacy of her birth and the disapproving whispers. Either way, London beckoned with its bustle, bright lights and promises of prosperity. We'll hear more of Doris's story in our next episode, charting her transformation into Olga, a woman accommodating the niche desires of a high-end clientele in the London sex trade. We'll also learn about how she landed a rich husband 30 years her senior, allowing her to hang up her whips and retire from selling sex. But that is not the end of Doris's tale. For, as on that December day in 1914, the horrors of war would come again. Her world of comfort would be turned on its head, and Doris would once again find herself on streets that were dark and dangerous. Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with genealogical research. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Wardour Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow. David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano playing by the great Barry Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori... Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan-Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.